While mainstream media obsesses over fake insurrections, fake genders, fake abortion rights, and fake white supremacy, the very real threat posed by artificial intelligence marches on with little attention. In 2018, at a tech conference in Texas, electric car tycoon Elon Musk said, AI is far more dangerous than nukes. Far. Oxford academic and technology expert Nick Bostrom has said that unbridled, ever-improving AI is hurling humanity boldly into the whirling knives. World Economic Forum chief and cartoonish villain Klaus Schwab has a different take on AI. Schwab and those like him see an AI-dominated future optimistically, even necessary. And his view seems to be the more common one among those who are familiar with the scary capabilities of AI. He has said that the fourth industrial revolution will lead to a fusion of our physical, digital, and biological identity. Technologies will become part of us. That's what he said. You, however, may be hearing this and you're thinking, nah, not me. They're not shoving a computer chip into my brain. Like me, you're probably satisfied with God's design for life. But characteristic to maniacal central planners MO, they may already have an answer for those pesky independent thinkers who won't go along with their plans. I'm Paul Dragu, and in this Freedom is the Cure episode, we're discussing the international oligarchs' plans for a post-human future and how they may be planning to literally change your mind about it. This is part two of my interview with Endgame author Dennis Barrent. And before we dive in, please remember to go to our social media platforms where you can like, subscribe, and share this video. It'll, it'll help us offset big tech's restrictions, and it'll get our crucial message to more people. So Dennis Barrett is a research expert and the publisher of the New American Magazine. He recently wrote a fascinating book titled Endgame, COVID and the Dark State Quest for Biodigital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. Dennis, thanks for joining me again, man. Hey, Paul. Good to be here. So, uh, as I said last last time, this book is just uh, is just crazy, man. And, and if someone has watched... Uh, the last episode and they still haven't gotten the book we highly highly recommend it we're going to go into some of that content uh today again thank you for putting this together you're welcome and uh let's dive in right away into some some of the uh some of the content in here let's sure. let's start with transhumanism that's been something that we have covered but as we had mentioned uh, establishment legacy media there seems to be almost nothing on there is this something that deserves attention? And if so, what is this thing? Transhumanism is the key trend for the future if you are amongst the uh, certain level of the elite that that worries about where trends are going and really wants to drive them in a certain direction. But, uh, you know, if you're hearing about transhumanism for the first time on this, on this episode, or you've only recently become aware of it uh, because of things that some of our other authors like Alex Newman have done, uh, rest assured that you're kind of late to the party uh, because the very first guy to come up with the name, the word transhumanism, was a gentleman by the name of Julian Huxley, brother of Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World. Julian Huxley was the head of, I believe it was UNESCO, and uh, he explicitly called for transhumanism. He coined the term, and uh, he was clear about what it was. It was going to be the transformation, the transmodification of humanity from what it had always been uh, into something new, into a post-human future. And we have people today actively talking about what will that post-human future be like. Think, think very carefully about this word, post-human. 
that means very something very specific. It means what comes after humanity will not be human. Have they used the word post-human? Yes, post-human is in common parlance amongst these people who are working on this very strongly. Who are some of these people? Are they just are they real fringy? Should we be worried? Or no, we're talking mainstream science, very mainstream science, and. Uh, we're talking governments here. Uh, a couple of years ago, I cite in Endgame a, a study, a white paper put up by the Canadian government on biodigital convergence. This is the, an official scientific publication of the Canadian government sketching out its policy for biodigital convergence, which is another euphemism for transhumanism, which is the merger of biology, human biology specifically, with digital technology. Mm-hmm. So specifically, uh, and one of the greatest uh, one of the greatest proponents of this is a scientist who you have to look at uh, with a bit of uh, respect because of his incredible intellectual accomplishments and a bit of dismay because of what he wants to accomplish. Um, and that is the author of a book called The Singularity, uh, mm-hmm. Ray Kurzweil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray Kurzweil has been an inventor of. Uh, many important things for many years, but he has for a number of years now and currently remains, as far as I know, a key leading engineer at Google. Uh, and Google, uh, which most people would think of as a search engine uh, technology company, uh, underneath is really an artificial intelligence company. Mm-hmm. And he's he's leading the cause. Uh, by the way, uh, when, I, when I mention his books, The Singularity, I should say that that is another way of, of talking about the post-human future. Uh, singularity in physics is an infinitely dense point of mass, so dense that the gravity is so strong that nothing can escape, not even light, meaning that beyond that singularity, we don't know what happens. It's impossible to know what happens beyond that singularity. Uh, in social structures and technological evolution, Ray Kurzweil has proposed to use that terminology to be the point at which our technology advances so much that we've achieved the post-human future and we can no longer even imagine what that future is because it's so radically different than everything that had gone before. <laughs> so uh, I guess that, that means I shouldn't ask, what, what, are, what is our future going to look like? But what is, uh, what is this convergence? What would this look like? Would they shove chips in your head? Would they map out? Like I say, in your book, you do describe various um, procedures uh, as they see them, of how we would become, you know, cyborgs or whatever. Can you go into that a little bit? Well, I think um, one of the key applications of this would be, um, you know, Facebook's recent rebranding tells you a little bit about it, and that's they've rebranded themselves to a company called Meta, mm-hmm. uh, and they they refer to something called the Metaverse, which is uh, an artificial universe that's layered on top of our own real universe, which they propose will become more real. Uh, in its perception. In other Mm. words, when you inhabit the metaverse, it will be more real than reality. Uh, So this is where they expect you to move to, the metaverse. And currently, how do you interact with such a thing if you were to wish to do so? How do you you achieve interaction with that level of something? Well, it's kind of clunky. You have to don 3D headset or whatever, goggles, whatever. It's pretty clunky stuff. Um, But... um, just like anything else, if you can improve that technology, you can improve the integration with the metaverse, there's going to be pressure to do so. Mm. And that pressure is currently out there. There's research ongoing. I cite it in the book. I'm not, you know, it's it sounds fringe, but it's not. I, the, the references are there. Uh, go pull up 
Google Scholar and search the search the scientists' names yourself. You can read the papers in leading yeah. journals. Uh, the technology that's being worked on is nanoscale, mm-hmm. so uh, you cannot see it without the aid of a scanning electron microscope or a, tran- a transmission electron microscope or something of those lines. These technologies would be uh, the creation of nanotech uh, chips infrastructure that could be integrated with the human mind. Uh, they're they're explicitly talking about one chip per neuron, uh, which would wow. then be yeah one chip per neuron, which you know there's billions uh, that would then be both read and write capable. So they use read write in the in the sense that computer technicians have used read write. So you can read to a disk, you can read from a disk, you can write data to the disk. Yeah, uh, they want to be read write capable for the human mind, and the uh, principal application for this, as you can guess, militarily would be how do you integrate a more uh, instantaneous uh, control of weapon systems and uh, mm-hmm. sensing systems for uh, military applications. So DARPA is involved in this. Defense Advanced Research Project Agency is yeah. funding this. But it's taking place at U.S. laboratories uh, led by U.S. private private academic scholars and researchers. Um, so if implemented, and, and the research is ongoing, it's not commercialized, it's not out there today, yeah. I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not saying that you're getting this today in any kind of vaccine. Yeah. That's not where we're at. I mean, the reality is this is laboratory-scale research. But the intent is to be able to achieve this and be able to bring it to bear first on uh, military applications. But, you know, you know it's not going to stay there. Once these things can be commercialized, the pressure will be to commercialize They never them. stay there, yeah. No. And this would have direct implications for the metaverse. So you would no longer need, if this is successfully accomplished, you would no longer need to put on these uh, VR goggles. Uh, you would just simply have direct read-write access to the human mind. And uh, now think about the implications of direct read-write access to the human mind. Uh, that means you know, maybe if it's confined to you, you can understand what the technology is sending to you instantaneously, and you can send the information yeah. to your mind instantaneously for control. Uh, but uh, what about hacking? Yeah. Uh, what about centralization of control? What about implantation of thoughts and ideas? Right. Um, we had mentioned in the last episode, Yuval Harari, there is... I don't know if it's just his speech or in his book, one of his books as well. He talks about how the danger of us becoming, was it hackable? Hackable. Hackable beings. Well, he is not just forecasting the future of what that danger might be, but um, there is a a terminology used among researchers called moral Mm bioenhancement. This is not new. Uh, This is more than a decade old. Uh, researchers, very key researchers, publishing in leading journals like those published yeah. by Cambridge University, are working today on technologies and uh, the ethics of and the frameworks for utilization of methodologies for moral bioenhancement. And what that means is, wait, before we go into yeah. more, before we go into that, let's let's rewind slightly a little bit because this these capabilities of of, of merging technology with humans. Now, a lot of these people, you know, including I believe the Klaus Schwabs and whatnot, have have also hinted that this may be a way for immortality. And I believe oh, yeah. you have a, a chapter in there. Was it called Secular Immortality? Secular Immortality. Yeah. Can, yeah. can you go into that? Because I, that that's a really, <laughs> really crazy idea. And I think it would be a shame for us to finish this episode oh, yeah, before, we we, talk. before we talk about <laughs> Immortality, like this is like, is this something they're really aiming this is for? Really being aimed for? Yeah, absolutely. Billions of dollars are going into this research at uh, 
private research firms and private companies right this minute funded directly by outfits like Google. And I bring up Google specifically because Ray Kurzweil is affiliated with Google and uh, the intellectual modern impetus for this comes from Ray Kurzweil who has been directly involved in advocating for this very thing. That's part of the singularity idea mm-hmm. that he was has been proposing. But by no means is Ray Kurzweil the only guy interested in this. Um, uh, if he were, we wouldn't see billions of dollars being invested in it. Quite literally billions of dollars, entire companies being funded yeah. to research immortality. Uh, immortality is no longer being looked at by these researchers as something that uh, is like uh, taxes, you know, in the concept of death and taxes are unavoidable. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, they now believe firmly that death is avoidable and it can be engineered away. And maybe it could be engineered away biologically, or maybe it could be engineered through biodigital convergence. And these tw- these twin tracks are both taking place. I mean, the research is in both areas. So so one of the things I read was that they is, is there this idea that you can live forever because I guess the idea is that you are just your thoughts and your memories, right? And they can use, for instance, ta- nanotechnology uh, to map out your brain, your memories and whatnot, I guess download them, upload them or whatever to the cloud, and then, you know, put it in this body that you can choose, this cyborg body, right? If you even need a cyborg body. I mean, if you're in the metaverse, you don't. It's need just anything, perception, right? right? So, Holy um, it's, moly. It's, I think, therefore, I am. It's it's getting back to the Cartesian idea. Yeah. Um, in a more <laughs> concrete, if you will, way, um, and it sounds ludicrous to you and I, and it sounds ludicrous to the to the average person who you know enjoys their family and living in the real world. Yeah. But uh, fundamentally, um, people are working seriously on this with billions of dollars in play. Yeah. And have now. This is not just a recent, uh, you know, happened in the last twenty, happened in the last twenty months or something. This is now, you know, going back to two thousand, two thousand five. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of work going on now. I'm a critic of this. Yeah. But we have to we have to say for sure that there are positive outgrowths okay. of some of these technologies, right? That was going to be one of my questions. I mean, yeah. for sure. Uh, if you come up with a way in your research uh, along these lines where you can control and uh, and cure. Uh, cancer, uh, which yeah. is not impossible. I mean, that's a difficult thing to do, but there are some significant advances being made. Uh, that's a huge benefit to everyone. Yes. Um, so uh, that's there's a, also that's a good in, thing. My understanding is there's also another way they may be pitched is uh, a cure for mental uh, deficiencies and diseases and things like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Although that is very much a dangerous slippery slope because now you have to have someone determine who has a mental deficiency mm. and what that mental deficiency might be. Uh, and, uh, oh, there's never been a history of abuse there or anything. <laughs> but we're already, we're already defining what, yeah. what mental deficiency, mental illness is. But like, you're right. But, and we're already messing with that. Would you say there's, there's somewhat um, already a parallel in the sense that we're already taking medication oh, to up yep. those, I don't know, say your lithium count and whatnot. So so this doesn't seem like it'd be that far of a stretch. All of a sudden you're telling, hey, look, you're not going to have to take these pills anymore or whatever. Now we have the technology. And I, I guess this is where nanotechnology may be the kind of thing Absolutely. that comes in. And, you know, what, what would it do? It, is the idea that it would rewire your brain? It would. That's, that's kind of... Oh, know. there are many great applications for this including for people who suffer through paralysis from accidents. Mm. Uh, there's been 
you know, a long history now and uh, increasingly promising history of research in how nanotechnology and certain other neural interventions can uh, provide uh, a path forward for people who otherwise would right. be paralyzed. And, you know, we're not there yet, but boy, there's a lot of interesting research going yeah. on and people will benefit from these things potentially. Mm. It's the great thing about technology. You, you do get a lot of benefit from it and right. no one should stop doing the research. The key point that I make in Endgame, though, is that ideas are at the root of whether evil is done or not. And so a technology is a, neut a neutral matter, but the person using it and the ideas behind the actions they take with it, that's where the problem comes in. So we have to confront the bad ideas that mm -hmm. lead to the bad applications of technology. You, you mean these technologies have the possibility of being used for nefarious reasons? Absolutely, yep. <laughs> so let's talk about this idea that in uh, some of these folks who are at the cutting edge of this and who are prime advocates of this say that diffusion between humanity as it is now, organic humanity and machine is also necessary to keep up with the advance of AI. Yeah. Well, you know, if you believe that AI is going to happen, and I, I, I think that there is an idea behind that that is important and more important even than the existence, factual or not, of AI, but we'll leave that aside for the moment. If you're in the school of thought that AI is going to happen, uh, then you are going to believe, generally speaking, I think Nick Bostrom really spends many hundreds of pages in his works on this subject, that AI necessarily, if it's achieved in a general sense, the AI then will be a learning machine. And because it can operate at speeds much faster than the human mind can, it can learn much more quickly than the human mind can. And that is exponential. Yeah. And so at some point, uh, we would seem to a machine to be moving in molasses yeah. while the machine is advancing at speeds that we can't even begin to comprehend. And so we become basically uh, useless. We become irrelevant to the machine, and therefore we face ex extinction at the hands of that machine, hands, hands figuratively speaking. So this is kind of like a Terminator uh, scenario, right? Kind of like the Terminator scenario, yeah. They, I, if th they're claiming that there's an endanger of us becoming extinct, then what they are saying, and have they said this outright, is that the machines can wake up and uh, eliminate us. Is that, is that a... That yeah, Nick Bostrom, spent, Nick Bostrom, who, by the way, is a, a, a very important Oxford scientist, very important thinker, um, he's explicitly written about this as the danger of superintelligence. Um, mm -hmm. His book on that topic was titled that way. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a dense read, but if you're interested in this topic, I strongly suggest anyone interested to pick up superintelligence and read Nick Bostrom. Yeah. I'm not sure where he falls, if he's an advocate or not of it, but uh, he definitely is describing the dangers of it. Now, um, have you seen that Tom Cruise movie? With the with the it, that takes place in the future, and at the end you find out that the god or whatever that that is like this big this machine that's out in space. No, I don't think I have seen that. Yeah, you know the machine wipes out. It, it sends out drones. It wipes out most people, and 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 it clones human beings and whatnot. It's like when I saw that, I saw that recently. Okay, and, you know, of course, as we get into all of this stuff, it's just like wow, you know, because there's a lot of movies out there, and it's like they're more. They seem to. Well, be more than fiction. Let me terrify you. Oh, thank because you. Because go ahead. <laughs> this is the dramatic depiction of how uh, a superintelligent AI might decimate humanity. I don't think that's how a superintelligent AI would decimate humanity. I don't think it's going to be anything dramatic like a bunch of s autonomous drones yeah. uh, chasing us down like Terminators. Yeah. Um, but we already have AI algorithms heavily involved in many aspects of 
uh, our economic infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And uh, we already teach AI to play strategy games, and AI strategy games, uh, you know, AI is dominant. I mean, yeah, AI is quite good at this mm-hmm. uh, already, very good. Uh, for instance, it was, the Chinese strongly believed that no one could ever defeat uh, their champion players of the game Go. Um, not any human could defeat the Chinese because they're the best at it and legitimately are. Uh, and not, not, not only that, but no AI could ever defeat a human Go player, a human Go champion. Oh, that, I'm sorry to say, AI easily defeated the human Go champions. Not even a problem, which is the most complex game, more complex than chess, Mm -hmm. uh, strategy game. Um, So if you're an AI and you're wanting to wipe out humanity, do you really need to use uh, bloody, ugly uh, drones and chase people down like Terminator? I really don't think so. You can easily manipulate human supply chains. You can easily manipulate human financial markets. You can easily manipulate human... Uh, agricultural and uh, distribution networks. Uh, you can easily manipulate human behavior into self-destructive behaviors. Um, so when you're thinking about the many ways in which a superintelligence might act to the harm of humanity, uh, don't confine yourself to thinking it's going to be something dramatic like Terminator. It could be something that makes humanity uh, behave in a dangerous way. In a self-destructive yeah. way. So mm-hmm. then think about that in terms of your current context and wonder what's going on. Because I'll bring up the current uh, controversy out of Google, which is an engineer who I believe he was recently fired, and I don't know if this guy is a good guy or bad guy, where he stands. I don't know his background whatsoever, but uh, this gentleman uh, a couple weeks ago raised a heck of a firestorm of controversy by saying that, in his opinion, one of Google's AIs is already conscious. Yeah, well, the the Post, the Washington Post did that, that piece on it, and I'm... Uh yeah, I mean, what do you think of that? Because it seemed like they, it was a little, the, the post, the way they wrote it, it was like, ah, I don't know about this. Yeah, it's, it doesn't seem too credible. It's unclear. Yeah. It could be, but I don't have an opinion one way or the yeah. other. But here's one of the things I like to do, because we, we don't know, so we have to kind of infer from the actions. So I think uh, one of the things you can infer from uh, whether the, an AI starts to exist is if whistleblowers start coming forward with mm. that story. So this is one guy. One guy's not enough of uh, mm. statistical uh, uh, evidence to, to draw a conclusion. But if we now, over the next five or six years, start seeing 2, 5, 10, 12, 15, 20 different whistleblowers from different areas coming out and saying, you know, I think this AI is conscious, well, then I think maybe we start to have uh, something to look at. Yeah. And he's not the first one to have done this. There have been other researchers who have said, well, I've, I've had some AIs going into testing. They're doing some things we can't explain. It's a little creepy. We shut them down. <laughs> would, would we be able, like, they come alive or whatever, it, would it be as easy as shutting them down or how would you shut that down? Like, no, in the, Nick, in the Nick Bostrom world, if you follow the Nick Bostrom line of thinking laid out in superintelligence, if a superintelligence does come to fruition, by definition, there will be no human intelligence able to compete with it. We will have lost the race. Hmm. Wow. Now, uh, you, were, you were beginning to go early on into moral bio-enhancement, and I read the, your article on that. Now, this is fascinating stuff, and it ties into this by, uh, it seems like it's some sort of mind and uh, behavior control for those who, who don't want to go into this future that some believe is inevitable, which is an AI-dominated, whatever way you want to cut it, future. Yeah. Uh, go into this. This is this is cr- more crazy stuff. It's Dennis, crazy, this is yeah. just insane, man. <laughs> we live in a fringe universe now, Holy unfortunately. Moly. Uh, which is a recognition that science and technology has exceeded the grasp of most average people. 
Uh, and the one quick point I'll make about that, Jennifer Doudna was the key innovator in the world of CRISPR, CRISPR being mm. uh, the most advanced form of genetic modification, genetic manipulation thus far invented. Uh, and she makes the point in her book, which I encourage everyone to read. It's a fabulous book. Uh, she's a genuinely genius researcher. Um, she makes the point that she goes to her lab and she works on these fantastical things. Uh, then she goes home and she goes to a PTA meeting with her neighbors and she's like, I live in these two universes. The one in which where I go to the PTA meetings with other parents and I have my neighbors and my, my family and, and whatnot, they can't even imagine what's going on in the other universe in the lab because it's so far beyond the realm of general human understanding. Well, you know what? That's not just in genetics. That's in a lot of areas. And here's one, moral bioenhancement. Under the radar for the last 15 20 years, but 15 years for sure, while most people have no idea this is going on, so-called bioethicists, who you mm. would think are supposed to understand what is the ethical way to use mm. biological technology and its impacts on human society, bioethicists have been working to develop the idea of moral bioenhancement. And the foundation of this is the idea that they write this explicitly. Since about mid-century, humans have had the ability to destroy the planet in yes. a number of ways. And we have uh, antiquated primordial ethical systems that are not capable of dealing with this capability that we have technologically. We're unfit for We're the future. Unfit for the future. So, okay, those of us who know enough to make the decision will have to come up with a way to modify the rest of humanity to be more docile. Yeah. And so That's there's fascinating research who going appointed on them point. yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy okay yeah. keep going i'm sorry man <laughs> well and this comes to fruit this this really hits the rubber meeting the road here when the in the covid area so we have one of these researchers who who i've talked about in this uh, follow-up to endgame which you can find on our locals channel for the new american uh magazine um one of these researchers because he was saying well you know there's too many people who are not lining up to take the vaccine. There's too much anti-vax sentiment. That was one of the reasons, right? That's one of the reasons. We need moral bioenhancement because mm -hmm. these people are too morally inferior to understand that they need to take this vaccine. So, right. well, my gosh, we, you know, we're going to have to enhance them biologically somehow. And, you know, there's many ways we could do this, but one of them could be covert and we could just adulterate the water you know, with some agent that would cause moral bioenhancement. Uh, in other words, make people That's more... That's very ethical. Very ethical, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah. It's like, obviously the irony is just so blatant. Yeah. Uh, all right, keep going. This. Tell, tell us about how far are we? Like, what are some other ideas of these crazy people? Well, it gets down to uh, <coughs> the real crazy idea is, you know, first of all, they're, they're, they're accepting in some quarters of <clears throat> coercion, first of all. Coerced moral bioenhancement is an acceptable outcome yeah. for them, uh, but they have they go through a progression. Well, you know, it's if you do open coercion, maybe that would generate backlash. So what if we do it covertly? Mm. Uh, but then, who's to say it's not already happening to some degree? Who's to say? Um, that's correct. I mean, it it bears paying attention to the research on these subjects because. With, the ideas start there, yeah. they move out from there. Uh, but the the final, I think. Uh, the final straw on this, or where it really gets alarming, is that uh, the proposals have been made in the uh, uh, academic journals now mm -hmm. on moral bioenhancement that, well, 
it would be better if we just engineered people genetically before they were born to have these traits so that they weren't so that they were more docile and more predictable and less likely to engage in behaviors we don't want so they would not they would never even know they would be born without knowing that they had been manipulated would they be born with some sort of inclination for to for suggestive inclination you know cuz that breeding out of aggression in particular they want mm. people to have less aggression oh wow um well, why, why do people get aggressive? Why do normal people get aggressive? It's because they're defending their interests, defending their families, defending their freedom. Uh, so they want to get rid of this inclination to aggression that would defend your interests so that you can then be part of the collective in a more enhanced and better way from their point of view. Uh, and, you know, when they talk about doing this genetically, uh, I will only say this. Uh, I mentioned CRISPR. Mm -hmm. uh, CRISPR is only a decade old. Yeah. Uh, and CRISPR is advancing very, very rapidly. And the ability to genetically modify, the, well, first of all, the, the ability to, to target the genetics behind certain traits yeah. now is quite well advanced and advancing rapidly. The ability to manipulate the genetics in response is advancing rapidly. Uh, so we're no longer, we're, we're no longer at the point where we could say, well, that's just something from the far distant future. Sure, people are thinking about that, yeah. but eh, 50 or 60 years, maybe that's a reality. We're no longer having the luxury of 50 or 60 years. The technology is advancing far too quickly. We may be seeing that much sooner than we might want. Yeah, you had mentioned uh, the, the doing it covertly. I, uh, there's a quote in your, in your article, and it says, another challenge is that the defectors who need moral enhancement are also the least likely to sign up for it. That makes sense, right? As some have argued, a solution would be to make moral enhancement compulsory or administer it secretly, perhaps via the water supply. Yeah. Who, who said that? Parker Crutchfield? Yeah, that's him. Yep. Yeah. Now, isn't that crazy that one of the things that some um, that, that crazy or people get labeled for being nuts is that, you know, they're like, oh, they're putting something in the water supply. It's like, first it's the birchers, I think. <laughs> birchers get a bad rap for supposedly saying that the fluoride and whatnot was, you know, was, was mind control and whatnot. And here you have people, uh, very intelligent people, very innovative people saying it's like, we're the we're the ethics police. <laughs> That's irony, of course. And uh, if people do not want to adhere to, to these uh to, to to these rules and the, the way that we our our vision of the future is that we'll just put stuff in their water, yep. so then they can become more docile, less aggressive, and just do what they're told. This is real. Like it's real. these people, these are real thoughts, and it's not some guy in his basement, yep. whatever. It's like these are real people with uh, with with advanced. Uh, degrees yep. and, and, and influence. And they're publishing in respected academic journals for other researchers to read and react to. And, and in a sense, that's good mm -hmm. uh, because the dissenters can then react to that and, and, and throw up in the academic yeah. journals the dissenting cases. And some of that does happen. But I think all too often uh, the uh, totalitarian impulse is strong in these ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the the lust for uh, innovation in these areas outweighs the moral concerns and implications of them. Yeah. And so I think you see the constant trend toward, well, let's see if we can do it. Let's see mm. what happens. Let's experiment. And this is just what we know about. That's what we know about, uh, yeah. You know, who knows what, what, what else is, is out there. Um, but th it's also a good thing, I would say, that we're bringing attention to this because 
it would give us hopefully some notice because I th- you look back at, uh, in the past and you know especially I brought up the John Birch Society and I brought that up because one thing that we had been warning for a long long time was that there was this tyrannical machine that was being built and one day it will be very obvious and obviously that day has arrived mm-hmm. um, you would hope that maybe at some point or now that we bring this up we can avoid whatever crazy plans that there may be put into motion right yeah, we can you know the thing is um, you have to shine a light on these things so people know they're happening right and uh, it's for a long time the academic journals were just that they were for academicians mm-hmm. and they still are most people don't pay much attention to them until the mainstream press summarizes some of the things that they want to promote out of them um, but uh, you can go ahead and for free read the abstracts of these papers. So if you're interested in moral biological enhancement, yeah, I'd recommend you go out to scholar.google.com, search mm-hmm. the term. Scholar.google.com. Yep, filter, filter the results to whatever period you want unless you want to look at the entire date range of everything that comes up and read some of the abstracts. You'll get a you'll start to get an idea of the intellectual landscape that is uh, being built around these ideas. And this goes for other ideas as well. Yeah. Um, People should do this. Uh, not, it should not. It should no longer be that these ideas are confined to just academic experts. Mm-hmm. The reality is that the ideas that come from there end up informing public policy. The public policy starts to be implemented on the population. The population right. suffers the consequences, unknowing as to where these things come from. Well. Get out there and look at the journals. Read the abstracts. They're usually in a paragraph yeah. or too long. Yeah, they're a little bit technical sometimes, uh, but break out a dictionary. If you're interested, do the work because you'll find these things. They're, they're not difficult to track down. Would you say that this is the best way to get ahead of this is build this understanding, create this understanding? Because, like, other than that, I don't know. We like to get involved. Uh, yeah you know, electorally and with our with our legislators and whatnot. But I would imagine that you, if you were to go to your legislator, be like, what are you talking about? Absolutely. <laughs> because your legislator is not going to have known of these things either. They're not going to have heard of it. Yeah. Uh, so you have to be informed and you have to understand that you have to have the citations. You have mm-hmm. to know what you're talking about. You need to be able to point to yeah. so-and-so works for the University of Miami. That's where their research lab yeah. is. These are their credentials. Uh, all of this information is out there. So when you look at an academic uh, abstract in Google Scholar, for instance, you can see the other ar- articles that are citing that article. You can see the citations that own article has made to other parts of the literature. You can find out how many other yeah. scientists have cited the article. So you can start to understand what is the level of interest around a particular idea. Mm-hmm. You can start to understand how serious that idea is in academia and, and what the implications for private enterprise might be and public policy might be. And you can start bringing that to light to your yeah. your circle of influence, your family, your friends. Um, and you can talk about it authoritatively. You won't necessarily come off then as a fringe guy wearing a tinfoil mm-hmm. hat or a fringe lady wearing a tinfoil hat. You can say, nope, it was in the journal Bioethics on yeah. this date, written by this author from the University of Cambridge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the article link. Yeah. Go read it for yourself. The bottom line is we should definitely take this seriously. Can you think of a concept or a technology that perhaps before it became dominant and was used for good and evil was not taken seriously? I'm sorry, I know that's well, a tough question. <laughs> most technologies? <laughs> um, like, would you say vaccines? Per, well, perhaps. well, the vaccines maybe to some degree, but I don't think they're the preeminent example. Um, but even going back to the Industrial Revolution, um, 
most people were very skeptical of steam power. Um, you know, how can a blunt force do better than the hands of the artisan, for instance? Yeah. Of course it can't. Uh, well, missing the boat here because the steam engine was designed by human hands and further innovation brings it along. But usually whenever there's a disruptive technology, there's a skepticism around it. Yeah. And it becomes more uh, of a disconnect now than it was then because the technologies that we're talking about that, that are being uh, worked on are so science fiction. They're so far advanced. They seem like they're beyond even the imaginings of some science fiction authors. I mean, they're really advanced technologies. That's what it sounds like. It's really exciting in a, in a sense in a way, because, yeah. wow, we're achieving some really cool things. Uh, but the technology itself is not evil. Mm -hmm. uh, the technology can be used for good and the technology can be used for evil. So we need to know what the technologies are and we need to put them in the proper moral framework. Yeah. And we need to advocate for them or oppose how they're used so mm -hmm. that they're used correctly and for yeah. the benefit of people and not for ulterior All motives. Right. And first and foremost, we need understanding to, of what they are. Any last words, Dennis? Well, you know, we live in a time of crisis. Uh, and I think everyone feels that. Uh, you look out and you see uh, a food crisis coming. You look out and you see economic devastation from the Biden administration and from uh, the global would-be controllers. Uh, but I'll just point out that once upon a time, our founding fathers lived in a time of great crisis. And what did they create from that crisis? They created the greatest liberty respecting, protecting republic that the world had ever seen, that no, no, had never existed before in all of human history. They created something that has enduring importance and value. Now we live in that crisis. We live in an even worse crisis. What can we create? So we can do it. We need to be as smart as our founding fathers were then. Uh, they did it through continuous study and understanding mm -hmm. of the issues of their day. We can do it too through the continuous studying and understanding of the issues of our day, and and we can bring from bring right. forth from this crisis, not a catastrophe, not an apocalypse, not the end of uh, civilization that uh, all too often seems about to happen to us, but a new birth of freedom and liberty that leads to a, a new era of responsibility, personal responsibility faith, family, freedom, prosperity for everyone. And uh, I'm excited about the future. I think we, we stand on the cusp of uh, an unimaginably, impressively, importantly, fantastic, successful future. Uh, we just have to be smart as yeah. we move through this crisis. That's awesome. I, I like that. And history shows that that has happened repeatedly where we come yeah. out better. And there's no reason we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't do that this time either uh, because the other option is is not a great option and is, I don't see it as an option at all. Failure is not an option in this case. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. Thanks, Paul. Wow. Can you believe that, folks? Well, if you don't, it'd be to the detriment of all of us. So please pass this message along to as many people as possible. As you heard Dennis say, winning is possible. The more people realize what is happening, the better we can ensure that aspiring technocratic rulers remain confined to their miserable little elitist conclaves and they leave the rest of us alone and we can pursue a future full of freedom and prosperity. So you have, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to The New American, which stays on top of important news like this uh, that we just discussed. And if you're not a member of the John Birch Society, apply today. Education and organization is how we fight back. It's how we restore and preserve our God-given liberties. We have a robust educational apparatus and we have the organizational structure to mobilize enough people to change this country and to ensure that freedom is preserved. 
We've been dug in the trenches for 63 years, and we have the battle scars and the experience to prove it. So get in touch with a local coordinator to get you started. Links are in the description below. And that remember that whatever the societal ailment, freedom is the cure. Thank you.